We're in a series. Oops. We're in a series called Real Conversations, and it is a time when we talk about issues that are important to us, but oftentimes are neglected within the church. And today's topic is a topic that matters to so many of you, if not all of you. In fact, uh, you spend more time thinking about doing this more than anything else in your life. In fact, you do this more than you do uh, relationships, more than you do parenting, more than you do hobby, and more than you do your faith. In fact, statistics say that you will spend probably a third of your life doing this, and it's a four-letter word, it is work. Um, unfortunately, a Gallup poll in 2016 revealed that among millennials, 71% oh, uh, of workers don't feel that they are engaged at work. They don't like their work. And so that is why oftentimes, you know, we have this euphemism talk, to talk about our, our, our relationship with work, Monday blues, uh, hump day, and TGIF. It kind of conveys, I work, but I don't really want to work. I want to give two disclaimers. First of all, although I just talked about like work as in paid work outside of the home, um, the scripture sees, in fact, Titus 2.5 talks about working at home. So if you are a, a worker at home, a homemaker, don't think this doesn't apply, you, apply to you. What you do at home is work. And if you are a student, you think, well, I'm not working yet. Well, actually, what you are doing as a junior high, high school, college, or or, uh, or grad student, that what you are doing in the classroom is preparing for work. And so when I talk about work today, if you're a full-time student, think of yourself in the classroom as work. Uh, the second disclaimer is this. Uh, you may think, well, uh, what does a pastor know about work? I, you know, I used to be a, a computer engineer before this life, but more importantly, uh, pastors, even vocational full-time pastors, are employees or workers. And I believe it is a misnomer to think that because we're engaged in so-called spiritual or Christian work that we're exempt from the same type of integrity and work ethic that is required for any professional. So today, this is what, how I am applying my, my professional excellence. As someone who has been set apart, called to uh, teach the Bible, what I'm going to do is, is uh, give you four framework of what the Bible says about work. We're going to look at four locations in which work uh, teaches something. Um, we're going to look at work in the garden, work outside of the garden, work at the tower, and work on the cross. Okay, so we're going to, first of all, look at work in the garden. And work in the garden uh, was a calling, was a calling. So if you recall, in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve. And one of the first things that God does after he creates them, he gives them a command. And he gives it uh, to both husband and and wife, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He essentially said to the first man and woman, go make babies and go to work. 
And then in chapter 2, uh, it is more of an, uh, ex um, a detailed explanation of chapter 1. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to, listen carefully, work it and keep it. Uh, I want you to realize this, that the first command given to humanity uh, was not a command to do something uh, spiritual or transcendent or life-saving. It was fairly mundane. Work the garden. Work the garden. There is nothing inherently meaningful about gardening uh, work except for the fact that it was commanded by the Creator God. You know, oftentimes we categorize work. We, we categorize spiritual work as opposed to secular work. And, and, and somehow spiritual work, like church work, is more important. We categorize white-collar work as, a, as opposed to blue-collar work. So work that requires a lot of brains as opposed to brawn, we think this is somehow superior. We think of work that is life-saving as opposed to uh, mundane, as if those who are in uh, medicine is superior, more necessary than those who uh, you know, work at restaurants, for example. Well, I think that's a huge mistake because if you think about it, the initial God calling was to Adam and Eve, and the work was something that was not uh, spiritual. It was not intellectual, white-collar, nor was it life-saving. It was mundane, blue-collar, and secular. Go work the garden. I, I want you to remember that Adam and Eve were gardeners. Jesus was a carpenter. Paul was a tent maker. Lydia was a fabric maker. And David was a shepherd. Tim Keller, in, his every, um, in the book, Every Good Endeavor, writes, The material creation was made by God uh, to be developed, cultivated, and cared for in an endless number of ways through human labor. But even the simplest of these ways is important. Without them, all human life cannot uh, flourish and I believe it is important for us to realize that even the most mundane, secular, blue-collared work, whatever uh, God has called you to, can be seen as a calling. But it's important to realize, as Os Guinness said in his book, The Call, if there is no caller, there is uh, no calling, only work. A calling is only a calling if there is someone doing the call. And I would add this, that it is only a divine calling if the person who is doing the calling is the divine. So whatever it is that you are doing, it is a divine calling if God had called you to it. You know, um, as, a, as many of you know, our worship director is Robbie Jung. So on Sunday, he comes up and he leads worship for us, and, we, um, and we're, we're grateful for that. So on Sunday, he's called to be our worship director, something that we believe is spiritual. But Monday through Friday, he is a principal. And we are tempted to think as, um, in, a, in an incorrect manner that what 
Ravi does Monday through uh, Friday is less important, but, um, but if you have a student in his school, you will probably uh, realize and, and admit that really what I care that Ravi does, what he does Monday through Friday is so much more than what he does on Sunday. He is called not only to be as a worship director, but as a principal. And so listen carefully. Those of you who work at home, at, at your jobs, or as a student, you have a choice. You can say that it is just my job and be uninspired and disengaged and do it out of drudgery. Or you can see it as a calling, a divine calling given by God and see a greater purpose because it is God who said, go work the garden. The second place in which work happens, and I believe it's important, is uh, not only work in the garden, but work outside the garden. If work in the garden was a calling, the work outside the garden is a struggle. As you know, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and there was a consciousness of sin, and God cursed them and their environment. And this answers one of the most fundamental questions that so many people have. And the question is this, why do I hate my job? Why do I hate my job? And for those of you who's like, no, I love my job, but there are portions of your job that you don't like. Why is it that I'm in my dream job, but I, this part I really dislike? And I have an answer for you. In, in Genesis 3, um, sin enters into the world and things get broken. In fact, three things get broken. And these are, uh, these are the three things which get broken that make work hard for you. The first thing that breaks is work itself breaks. Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, God pronounces this curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. It may sound negative, but it is the world outside of the garden. It is post-fall world. And, and God says to the gardener, that work will be difficult. You will have to uh, contend with thorns and thistles. And until the day that you die, you'll have to um, effort and abide by the sweat of your brow. Work is broken. It's hard. The second thing that is broken is this. For a lot of people, if you, and for yourself, if you work and you had to ask yourself or another person the question, why is it that work is so hard? What is it about work that I really find difficult? And for a lot of people, it's not the work itself, but the people that you work with. It's the supervisor or the, the customers or the clients that you have to wrestle with. In Genesis chapter 3, when God uh, pronounces the curse, he said, even among the most intimate of relationship, husband and wife, parent and child, I will bring enmity. There will be conflict within those relationships. And so even with 
co and Genesis 4 talks about the, the conflict between brothers, and that extends to those who you uh, encounter at work. The most difficult thing about work for most people uh, is not the work itself, but supervisor and coworkers and clients or customers that you have to deal with. If you think about it, work would be so much easier and better if you don't have to deal with annoying, difficult people. You know, just a case in point, imagine you're a dealer at a, uh, a Honda um, place and um, you work in the service, uh, you work as a service manager and one Monday a customer comes to get an oil change. He did not make an appointment and he was told that he, uh, the wait will be about 20 minutes before someone can help him and he had to wait for about an hour for, before someone even helps him and he comes in and you you're trying to help this customer, and you say, you know, you need more than an oil change, and, and the customer gets a little bit curt and say, I, I'm so upset, I don't want to hear that. I, I've waited for an hour, and you apologize again, you know, because of the pandemic, a lot of our employees are out, etc. It's so difficult working with difficult customers. By the way, I had to apologize afterwards, because <laughs> that was me. And this horrible thought came to my mind, what if he visits our church on Sunday? <laughs> Work is difficult because people are difficult now. But I'm going to tell you what I believe is the biggest reason why work is difficult. It's not simply the, that work is broken. It's not simply that other people are broken. I believe the biggest reason, the number one reason that work is hard, that school is hard, that uh, working at home is hard is because you are broken, because you're broken. Sin entered the world, infected everyone, including you, me. What is it that is most difficult about working? And it's the conflict, it's the hurt feelings, it's the annoyances, it's the grumpiness. And I know this is a little bit simplistic, but James asks a question and he answers. In 4, 1 through 3, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James analyzes. He, he's a, uh, he is a master um, a, a, a teacher, uh, a sociologist, a psychologist, and he says the biggest reason why you are involved in so much conflict and quarrels, the, the reason you're so happy, it's not them, it's you. The, perhaps one of the reasons why 71% of us at the time uh, have such a difficult time at work is because something within us, something in our own hearts. There's a third place in which work happens, in which I believe there's something that we need to learn from, and it's work at the tower. At the tower, work is a religion. Work is a religion. There are people who are involved in a certain type of work, and they're thriving at their work. And in fact, uh, Genesis 
Um, 11 describes a particular organization in which uh, this organization is technical, um, uh, they have technological um, advantage, unified workforce, high performance, and a clear vision. And this is how Genesis 11, 3 and 4 describes this organization. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for motor leading technology. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we disperse over the face of the whole earth they had vision and unity of purpose and it was a high performing organization what we find out a couple of verses later is that god was displeased with this organization and he causes great disruption what is it about this organization this workplace where god was so displeased with and the answer is found in the heartbeat of the organization in that uh, they were motivated to make a name for themselves. That was at the root of this particular organization. And they were displaying what Romans 12, uh, Romans 1 says is the motivation, the propensity of sinful human beings. Romans 1 21 through 23, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Listen, you and I, we were created for worship. But what we've done is we've, uh, we've exchanged the glory of God for a glory that is more manageable and me-centered. And so, in certain parts of America, work has become that glory in which we worship. And it is through work that we attempt to find purpose, status, and identity. A 2019 article from The Atlantic talks about um, this phenomenon that is going on in America. The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something, and workism is among the most potent of the new religions, competing for congregants. What is workism? It is a belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. I believe there are two mistakes that we can potentially make when it comes to work. Uh, the first mistake is uh, we can make too little of work. We say there's no purpose, no meaning, and so we treat work in a disengaged manner. The other possibility is that we make too much of work and we tie our identity and our purpose to it work becomes our religion and if you um, aren't sure if that's what you possibly have done ask yourself some of these questions for the sake of uh, vocational success do you neglect the command to Sabbath weekly, 
to set aside that one day of the week uh, for the primary purpose of interacting, worshiping God. Whether as a student or as a worker or as a homemaker. Do you compromise your integrity or your family for the sake of uh, getting the next promotion or achieving more than others? Do you find yourself uh, identifying primarily for what you do at work as opposed to who you are in Christ? You know, we may have an affair with work, but she is a fleeting mistress. She will never fully satisfy the needs that we have to worship a transcendent God. Tim Keller again writes, work is not all there is to life. You will not have a meaningful life without work, but you cannot say that your work is the meaning of your life. If you make any work the purpose of your life, even if that work is church ministry, you create an idol that rivals God. Your relationship with God is the most important foundation for your life, and indeed it keeps all the other factors, work, friendships, and family, leisure, and pleasures from becoming so important to you that they become addicting and distorted. Let me uh, go to the fourth place where work occurs, and it's work on the cross, and work on the cross is restoration. Most of us find three different motivations when it comes to work. Our first motivation is that of money. Why is it that we do so many of us do uh, so much with people we don't want to be with, uh, with long commutes there, and it's because of money. Um, well, for other people, um, the, on a street level, our, the motivation is, man, we want to please people, whether it be uh, a supervisor or, or clients. Or another motivation is me, meaning... Uh, the, the few talented and idealistic people declare that they're not working for money, nor are they trying to please others, but they're trying to find their passion and spend their life fulfilling their passion. Now, I want to say that all three are commendable, and, and we, we, you know, we find purpose in all of them. We, uh, God wants us to make a prophet. God wants us to serve others, and God wants us to um, find meaning in what we do. But Matthew 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We can work for money, but that cannot become your primary motivation, because if we do, First Timothy, uh, Timothy 6.10 says it will lead to all kinds of evil, including selfishness and greed and dishonesty. We can work to uh, serve and please other people, but 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Christ tells Christ's followers that we ought to be different and that we ought to be good employees, not only to the good bosses, but to the unjust bosses. 
And that is the way that we are salt and light different from the world. And finally, 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, in that in the, the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and so on. Listen carefully. The problem with pursuing your passion, the problem, and I'm sure you've heard this before, do what you love and love what you do. You've heard that, right? That is the American definition of success, and Christians buy this hook, sink, and ladder. And we believe that we have to do what we love. But the, the problem with this is that is still me-centered. That I am the, my satisfaction and I am my most important priority. Mind you, there was this moment in time in history and Jesus um, knelt at Gethsemane can this pass, cup pass from me? And as a human, Jesus says he did not want to go to the cross and suffer the agony for the sins of all of humanity. And he ultimately said, uh, but your will, not mine. Your passions, your desires, not my desires, not will. There are times in our life, moments in our life, God calls us to go counter to our passions and our desires to die to ourselves, to follow Christ. When, when God created all of existence, he said it is finished. I mean, um, God, God, God finished the work and, that he had done, and it was good. But sin corrupted all of it until the carpenter who was born and lived a sinless life climbed upon that cross. And Jesus prayed at the very end, it is finished. And it is only at the finished work of Jesus Christ can we truly find our purpose and identity and meaning. It is Him whom we serve, not um, money, uh, not uh, man, nor me. Our primary motivation has to be the Master. So when Paul writes in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You know, there's so much more I, I wish I can say in terms of what the Scripture says about work, of how we, ought, how we can somehow um, find purpose and meaning in the mundane of the callings that God has given to us, but at the same time, even in the most meaningful, glorifying, uh, satisfying kind of work, uh, we don't allow that to become an idol for us. Um, and I'm, I'm going to invite my friend uh, to come up, and, and, and my friend Burton Lee is uh, currently the head of medical education and global critical care uh, with the NIH, and if you've heard of NIH, that's where Fauci works, and, and um, yeah, that, that's, that's where his office is. Um, Burton, uh, what's unique about him is he, he's not only brilliant, uh, he's taught at Harvard Medical School, Georgetown, and University of Pittsburgh. Um, and he's written books that uh, medical students uh, refer to and read. Uh, but what is uh, different and unique about him is that 
in the height of his uh, medical profession when he felt like, no, God is calling him not to idolize uh, having a faculty position at Harvard, but, uh, but to give that up, to be in a place where it will allow him to go do missions work, and he was obedient. At a time when, and, and his children were at high school and like ready, getting ready for their junior year, um, they felt like, no, God's calling them to give all that up and go to Africa. Uh, to be a missionary, to be missionaries. And so they were obedient to that, not making an idol of their profession, but being obedient to their master. Um, I'm grateful uh, for Burton. Um, Burton, would you come? And, and, and Burton was, is my best friend from college, and I'm so grateful that he is here. Come on up. All right, well, thank you so much, Pastor Steve. Uh, it's an honor for me to be here. Uh, I'm going to try to be uh, real with you, uh, as the topic seems to be real conversations. Uh, so I'm going to add my own uh, uh, story, uh, uh, mainly from the work that I do um, um, in, in my role as a physician and uh, as a teacher and as a professor. And so the, uh, the title of my portion is called What I Tell My Students, uh, reflections of a Christ-following professor. Um, the first thing I want to say is I really, really love what I do. And, and, and I realize uh, that may not be true for some of you, but I really do love what I do. Uh, as Steve mentioned, uh, I've been a professor at three different universities. And every, every time uh, that, I, that I have a chance to teach and to interact with young people, I truly love that experience. I think working with young people, you know, keeps me young, first of all, uh, but also I love the intellectual stimulation, and I really get excited when there is that light bulb moment that happens in the students when I'm explaining something complex um, or challenging. And even when I was working as a medical missionary uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, most of what I did was actually teaching. Uh, I taught uh, you know, students and, and doctors in training uh, who are African so that they could be... Uh, physicians themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, don't tell my boss this, but, but honestly, even if I didn't get paid for what I would do, I would actually show up for work. Um, so uh, I, I truly uh, feel privileged to be in that position. Now, not only am I a professor, I'm actually a physician. So um, I have a quick uh, uh, question for you, which is, how does a doctor cure somebody with, uh, 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 who is invisible? That is, how do you cure an invisible man? And the answer is, you take him to the ICU. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. So, thank you very much. Uh, okay. so, so I say that because I'm an intensivist, which means I work in an intensive care unit. And uh, I, I also love uh, my role as an ICU physician. Um, but I have to say that in the past 18 months or so, it's been hard. It's been really, really hard. Um, and I can relate to uh, this, uh, this doctor who was interviewed on, on television where he broke down crying about all the patients with COVID-19 who are dying. And, uh, and that's pretty much uh, a lot of what I do. And... Uh, uh, a lot of my world, um, and and it's hard, um, uh, you know, because I've I've unfortunately had to witness a lot of suffering, a lot of death, 
uh, most of which I would say is unnecessary at this point in, in the pandemic. And it's incredibly frustrating to see this uh, really get prolonged and perpetuated, mainly out of ignorance uh, from people. But on the physician and nursing side, you know, there's a lot of burnout and there's a lot of fatigue and many people are just tired uh, as healthcare professionals. But despite all the challenges like that, even though those struggles are real, I really still love what I do and I consider it a privilege. So, um, <clears throat> so in my role, as I said, I work with a lot of students uh, and their ages span roughly from the, you know, about 22 to 36, uh, whether you're a medical student, uh, all the way up through um, their terminal years as a fellowship um, trainee. And, um, and I have the privilege of advising them about various aspects of their career, some informally you know, over a cup of coffee, uh, other times actually in a classroom setting where I actually deliver lectures about various aspects of their career. Um, and so there are things that I tell my students, uh, and uh, I want to share a few of those with you uh, because I think some of them may also be relevant to your situation. So the first thing um, I tell my students is to pursue excellence. Now, at the beginning of the year when I meet some of my students, one of the routine questions I ask is I ask them to raise their hand if you want to be incompetent. And I'm sure you'd be happy to know that nobody raises their hand, okay? Um, and, you know, of course, I could ask you, okay, how many of you would want to go to an incompetent doctor? And I'm sure none of you would raise your hand. So this is not exactly a very challenging thing to think about, uh, but, I, but I do remind them to pursue excellence. And although we have many excellent physicians in this country, and we've certainly made many you know, in, you know, incredibly important medical discoveries that's improving healthcare, the most recent example being the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, we could be doing better. So what I tell my students are what the research data shows about the quality of medical care. And so here's some, you know, just a few examples for, uh, for you. Uh, there's a study that looked at about 6,700 real patient charts in the state of North Carolina, and they looked at what kind of problems do they suffer from, and what is the quality of medical care? That is, what do the doctors do for them, and, and, and what percentage of the high-quality evidence-based recommendations do they follow? And it was only 55% of the time. What that means is that as a patient, you might only get half of scientifically recommended treatments, uh, um, uh, which is very disturbing. And then to get to my own field as an intensivist, uh, as an ICU physician, uh, uh, people have looked at is how, how well do ICU doctors recognize significant problems for a patient on a ventilator? So ventilators are these life support machines. When a patient can't breathe, we put them on, on the machine to help them breathe. It can be life-saving, but it can also be very, very dangerous if you don't know what you're looking at. Uh, and so when they tested ICU physicians, they were able to recognize it only 44% of the time. And then almost identical information. They looked at patients with hyponatremia, which can be a life-threatening uh, condition where your sodium levels are so low so that it causes uh, significant problems for your brain. Uh, and again, uh, senior doctors um, were able to make a correct diagnosis only 43% of the time. So 
So we could be doing better. So none of you are my students, and most of you are not doctors. So what's the relevance for you is I could be asking you is whether you are an Uber driver, an accountant, a teacher, or a pastor, I could be asking you, are you pursuing excellence? Because how many of you would want to go to a, somebody who is incompetent as a lawyer or a, an incompetent accountant or an, even an incompetent driver? Uh, this is something that we all expect each other to do, and I would, I, would, I would suggest the same. And the reason why I say that is because it's not just the scientific evidence for doctors that I, that I look at, but, it, but that's exactly what the scriptures say. So there are many examples, but uh, I think you're familiar with many of these, but here's a, um, here's a passage from Proverbs 22, 29. says, do you uh, <clears throat> see someone skilled in their work they will serve before kings. And in Colossians 3.23, it says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. And so my suggestion is the same for all of you. Are you pursuing excellence in your work? The second thing I tell my students is to walk with humility. Now, sometimes physicians are not known for humility. But, but uh, humility is not just a good personality trait. It's not a social grace that we talk about. Because it actually turns out that if you are an arrogant physician or if you're a physician who lacks humility, you can actually be dangerous. And the reason is, for example, some doctors might come to what's called premature closure. That is, when making a diagnosis, you, you, know, you arrive at an erroneous conclusion and because of your lack of humility, you don't consider other options, and you make decisions based on a wrong diagnosis. Or other times, um, doctors, even though they should be seeking help because they don't know something or they don't you know, have the skills to do something, sometimes doctors may actually refuse or don't consider asking for help or learning new material as the science changes. And so that humility is, again, more than a social grace or personality trait. It's an essential character of somebody who is in medicine. So, um, so this actually is from our own data from our group. Uh, this is when I was at University of Pittsburgh. Um, but these are some of my students. These are actual data from my students where a test score is 0 to 100 that you can see here. So first of all, ask yourselves, which doctors do you want? If you're the patient, do you want to be seen by people over here uh, or people over there? But more important than that is look at what's on this side. This is actually their confidence level. Okay, it's, qu it's quite remarkable. Okay, the, the, the medical doctors and the students that I teach, the ones who have the most amount of confidence tended to be the least skilled. Okay? And that's the humility that I'm talking about. And it's not just my own data. There's actually a systematic review of 17 studies in total that have looked at this thing for doctors. And this is what they conclude, that all these studies indicate that the worst accuracy in self-assessment was among physicians who were the least skilled and those who were the most confident. But they also, said, they also suggest that this is not unique to doctors but this is consistent with the findings in all other professions. So it is potentially applicable to all of you as well. 
So again, none of you are my students, and most of you are not doctors, so what's the implication for you? So we draw our evidence, not from scientific studies like these, but from Scripture, and the Scripture says, again, very similar things. Here's a passage that I think is familiar to most of you, which is in Micah 6, 8. It says, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And then in Proverbs 11, 2, it says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. So my suggestion for you is also to walk with humility. Now, my own personal opinion is that those who are speaking the loudest, for example, about the COVID pandemic are the ones who have the least amount of knowledge about them. And that is, the, that is a problem that we face in society as a whole. The third, thing, the third thing that I tell my students is to walk with integrity. This seems like another pretty basic you know, character. Uh, who, who would want to go to a doctor who lacks integrity? Um, so that's what I encourage them. Now, um, as you may have experienced yourself, some people have joked that if you're going to be remodeling your house, you, you should not ask them about all their skills and all the houses, houses um, that they've done. You should ask them, but, but maybe you should also ask them if they have any kids in college or kids who need braces because they may not give you the best price or they may over-exaggerate the work that is necessary for your renovation. Well, it turns out same thing happens with doctors. And so this is the, the scientific study. So uh, this is uh, what's called a Dartmouth Atlas. And what it's, what it's charts here is the overall quality of medical care. So for example, at the top is high quality. At the bottom is lowest quality. Okay? But on this axis here, it's showing how much money gets spent to care for patients. And, and, and what you will notice is that the highest quality care tends to actually spend less money, but those who spend the most amount of money uh, in medicine actually provides the poorest quality care. So what's the reason for that? It's actually quite complex, but one of the reasons that they suggest is, is what they call ethics-related waste. It's kind of a polite term for doctors doing unnecessary things because it basically profits them. Now compare that, $395 billion a year, to what we consider as being fraud or theft. According to the FBI, the, the robbery, burglary, larceny, major theft is $16 billion as opposed to what white collar physicians might do uh, in contrast. So what's my suggestion for others? Again, none of you are my students and most of you are not doctors. Is again, look to the scriptures for this. And again, the principles are very similar. Here's a, here's a passage in Proverbs 20 um, where it says, The righteous who uh, walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. And another one in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 11, 1 says, The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. So my suggestion for you is the same, is to walk with integrity. The last thing that I tell my students is to practice generosity. Um, so um, I don't personally know any doctors who are billionaires, 
but I also don't know too many doctors who are poor either. Uh, in fact, the uh, lowest paid doctors uh, are still considered in the top 2% of the income bracket in this country, and then many doctors earn much more than that. Um, I think the only exception that I can think of routinely may be the missionary doctors, uh, but for a uh, vast majority of people, um, doctors are fairly comfortable. So, so, so you're in a position to be generous, but it's actually more than just the, that it's the right thing to do. It's actually good for you personally. So here is an, an example of a scientific study uh, that, that actually randomized people uh, and they gave them money and says, you know, I'm going to randomize you so that half of you give money and spend it on somebody else and the rest of you spend it on yourself. And then they asked, you know, uh, several weeks later as to how they're feeling about, uh, about what happened. And actually those who gave money felt much better. They were much happier. And so often the selfish thing is also the thing that is actually what the Lord requires of you as well. So my suggestion for you who are not my students and who are not doctors is very similar. So here's a passage in Proverbs 19.17. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the poor and he will repay him for his uh, deed. And another passage that I think, I think that you're familiar with is in James uh, chapter 1, verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion, is to, is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. So the jobs that we have and the incomes that we earn, you know, obviously it's a blessing from the Lord and it is to be enjoyed. But I think God is also asking us to be generous uh, with that uh, to the extent that we can. So I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, that – uh, that during my years when I uh, was, was working as a medical missionary along with my family in, uh, in Africa, uh, you know, I, was, I was supported very generously by this church. And uh, not only as a church as a whole, but uh, many of you individually supported our, our ministry. So I'm very, very grateful for that. So, and so thank you. Um, as far as um, how we practice this on our own, uh, is that my wife uh, have made some simple decisions, which is that we're going to try to live differently from other physicians. And what that means isn't just concretely as an example, is that we have agreed to, to actually try to buy homes that are smaller than ones that we could afford. And then we try intentionally to, to drive cars that are less expensive than the ones that we can, we can afford. Not because we have anything against houses or cars or anything wrong with them, but because we want to be generous uh, for the kingdom of God and so we simply allow ourselves that more margin so that we could be more generous. Um, as an intensivist um, who has witnessed so much suffering and death, especially unnecessary suffering and death for the 18 years, I have to say one more thing before I close. I want you to look at the last uh, passage that I put up in James. It says that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. So if pure and undefiled religion in God's eye is to look after orphans and widows, then as an extension, it seems logical to me that we should do what we can to not create orphans in the first place. But uh, here's a study uh, that was just published a few months ago by a friend of mine. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, she and her team found that actually the pandemic uh, has not only killed 650,000 people in this country so far, but it's also created about 150,000 new orphans. 
and obviously worldwide, it's millions more. So, uh, <clears throat> so let me just point out the obvious, that, th that all of this seems necessary if doctors and public health people seek excellence, but also if the public and, and, and all of you have the humility to listen to that expertise. So these are the four things that I tell my students, which is to pursue excellence, to walk with humility, to walk with integrity, and to practice generosity. And I invite you to consider the same. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for work. Uh, even though it can be a curse, it can be demanding, it can be a, a difficult situation, we thank you also for your calling us to do difficult things at times, pleasant things at other times. We thank you for providing us with meaning uh, through work. We thank you for uh, also for the opportunities to earn uh, our living through work. Uh, through all of that, we pray, God, that we would have the excellence and the humility and the integrity, and then in so doing, we'll also be able to practice generosity. And God, that we be able to balance from making work our idol as a sources of identity and to avoid that, but at the same time, settling for mediocrity uh, or uh, substandard calling to, to what you want us to do. So may you be glorified in the work that we do, uh, and in your name we pray, amen.